Go back with me in your mind, if you would, to the Old Testament times. About the time the Israelites were coming back from their Babylonian captivity, they were busily rebuilding the temple under the watchful eye of the governor Zerubbabel. At that time, in the city of Ephesus, there was a man born named Heraclitus. Heraclitus was a philosopher. You might remember what he was known for teaching, even if you don't remember his name. 2,500 years ago, this philosopher popularized the axiom, the truth, that the only thing constant in life is change. The only thing constant in life is change. And that's an axiom that most people readily adopted, right? Everyone could see that just by observation in their lives. Everything changes. Nothing stays the same. They uh, affirmed it then. They certainly affirm it now. It is um, something that seems self-evident. Heraclitus talked a lot about flux. He talked about uh, becoming. He talked about uh, the fact that there's always flow. Plato came along after him and said, um, popularized the idea that you can't step into the same river twice. The flow of existence makes that, makes that impossible. Well, just after Heraclitus died... God sent a prophet named Malachi to remind the Israelites, to quote him now from chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. I mean, that came at a time when everyone was talking about the fact that everything changed, nothing stays the same. Every philosopher, every intelligent person in the day, they love to quote that idea. And God says, I just want to remind you, I'm not in flux. I do not in my nature flow. I am never changing. I remain God and who I am, it, it, it never changes. Um, it's an important thing for us to realize, particularly in a world that is in constant change, as Pastor PJ said, in a culture that's always changing. And there's a need for us to recognize that, and as our conference title depicts, we need to be anchored to that. We need to be moored to that. We need to be tied, fixed to that. Our lives need that because God did something when he created human beings in time and space, he imprinted um, something of the divine nature on their soul. They're not divine, we're not divine, but there's something reflecting that. That if you get outside of that in your own thinking, you, uh, you really live out the truth of Solomon who said, um, you end up saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, everything is chasing after the wind. You're just grasping at things and you're never anchored, to use the word of our conference. That's all because, as he says in chapter 3, God has set eternity in our hearts. You can't have uh, human beings with an image that is reflecting the divine nature and um, not be uh, basically going through all the machinations of the book of Ecclesiastes if you don't get settled in this truth. Uh, you will... As in the words of Augustine, you will have a heart that is restless until you find rest in him. And while that may sound a bit uh, feminized, the way that's put, and it sounds like a good quote from my wife, um, the book of Ecclesiastes unfolds a pretty manly tragedy of a CEO, if you will, who uh, his life just self-destructs, never satisfied, never enough, can't have the things I want, I'm always grasping, I'm always discontent, I'm always... Um, unsettled because I have not 
as Augustine said, found rest in the eternality of God. And as we'll see, the eternality of God is rooted in the concept of a God who, uh, who does not change. Of course, he's a God who interacts with his creation. He's dynamic, he's not static, he's not frozen, but he is, uh, he's unchanging. And we must grasp that. If we don't, your life is going to look like a mess. It will be filled with angst and frustration. That's needed perhaps now more than ever, as Pastor PJ said, in a uh, world where all of this seems to be ramping up. My prayer for you, as the other pastors have prayed as well throughout the preparation for this conference, is that you can leave with your life more anchored. I'd love to say in an emphatic way that it would be anchored, anchored in a relationship with the true and living God in a way that you affirm the eternality and the immutability of that God in a way you never have before. In his word, which we know is a priority, and we have a high view of his word, we always preach his word, it's our middle name, Compass Bible Church, but to have a new appreciation for that unchanging word, and for the mission and the calling that is fulfilling, dynamic in a sense, in that it adapts to this world's challenges and needs, but it is a, at its core an unchanging calling, a a mission that you and I need to, uh, to hang on to tightly. Pastor Mark's going to deal with that. Pastor PJ is going to deal with the unchanging nature of his word. My assignment was to deal with the unchanging nature of God and to see if we might leave here anchored in that in a way that perhaps you haven't before. So are you up for that? That's the goal this weekend. Um, when I was a kid, they, um, kids that knew I went to Sunday school would often uh, corner me, not often, occasionally cornered me and said what uh, I think every Sunday school kid was... Um, challenged with. They would say, uh, hey kid, Sunday school guy, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? And of course, that was trying to expose the folly of the waste of time in going to church and Sunday school, because their parents didn't make them go, but ours did, um, to say, hey, you've got a God who can't do something. Right? Your God, if he's so great, should be able to do anything, and he can't make a rock so big he can't move it, or he can, I mean, something, he either can't make the rock or he can't move the rock, so you got a God that's, that they can't do something. I want us to be so comfortable with that, that it not only becomes something that doesn't bother us intellectually, but it becomes the comfort of my, my life, that we have a God who cannot do many things. As a matter of fact, I've come to learn, I didn't learn it right away with any zippy comebacks for the kid on the playground, but uh, I came to learn in contemplating God's truth and who God is, that uh, there is no God worth knowing, there's no God worth affixing my life to, there's no God worth studying who's not a God who does not do a lot of things and cannot do a lot of things. Not just he doesn't choose to do them, he cannot do them. So tonight, I want us to look at five passages and consider five things that God cannot do, all under the banner of the immutability of God, to mutate the idea of change. We have an immutable God, a God who cannot change. I am, he is unable to change. He's unable to change because he is God, and there are many things that are connected to that. His nature, his attributes, uh, so many of them are rooted in that. So five things God cannot do. And the first, I'd like you to look at Psalm 139. And if you find that text, you might want to write this down. Let's start with this. to Understand the greatness of God, a God that is worthy of our trust. 
we've got to get anchored, number one, to a God who cannot get smarter. Let's talk about that. There's something about God that is unchanging, and that is in the dynamic nature of his creation, the things that happen here, right, are not only not a surprise to him, but they cannot in any way inform him. As a matter of fact, this is the doctrine we call omniscience, right? A, a sentient being is someone who thinks and has knowledge. Omni-sentient, right? Omniscient is a God who has all knowledge. He possesses all knowledge. He cannot learn. He cannot be informed. It's not just that he can't be surprised like a, like a, like a woman, you know, uh, having a husband put a, you know, a rubber snake in, in the kitchen or something. It's not that he's not going to be shocked. It's that he cannot possibly know anything new. He creates a dynamic creation, but he is not now entering into that creation to interface with that creation in a way that he in any way gets informed. There's a whole movement that if you've been inclined to theology in the last 20 years called open theism, that somehow God in entering into a relationship with creation, he is somehow engaging in it in a way less than what God has revealed himself to be, a God who is um, truly omniscient. He's not just a God who plays the odds really well. He's a God who knows all things, and that we struggle with that as temporal creatures, and it seems like it's going to make us robotic or fatalistic. He knows what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow. Why don't you fake him out and have something else? Well, you can't, so it seems fatalistic that you're stuck with whatever God knows. But God is much more complicated than just uh, watching the tape before it happens. He's a God who cannot in any way be informed. And since so many of those things could be discussed in the abstract, and this is not CBI or a theological discussion, we want to deal with it on a uh, personal level, which I trust will pastorally minister to your heart by looking at Psalm 139. Let's start in verse number 1. As the psalmist talks about this knowledge as it relates to him, and I want to talk about this knowledge as it relates to you, and if you want to be anchored in a relationship with the real and true and living God, you cannot act like this is not true because this is true. This is the God who is. The God that when you think of one person among the billions on this planet, all of this, every word of this is true, and that's Pastor PJ's challenge to get you over that hump and thinking about the nature of God's word, but Let's just talk about what this reveals in the Word of God about who God is. David says 3,000 years ago about his life, long before you showed up, something that every human being that ever existed or will ever exist can rightly affirm. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. There's the idea of sentience. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He cannot in any way not know you. He didn't predict you. He didn't think that maybe if your parents got together, they might have a kid who's a lot like you. He has known you. He knows you in the way that uh, you don't even know yourself. Think about that. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you can't in any way do anything that he does not know. And before... This is a distance analogy talking in reference to time before you even have a thought. Your thought at, 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 at 8.36 tonight, right? he, he knows those all. He knows them all. He's got an absolutely intimate knowledge of every thought, good, bad, or otherwise, 
that you will ever have. You search out my path, a kind of inscrutable path that sometimes you don't even understand. How did I even get here? I don't even understand how I got into this profession or got this job or why I married this woman or why we had that extra kid or whatever you might think. He knows all of that. He searched out every part of it. He knows it. He knows when you lay down. He knows when you are getting up. He knows everything about your schedule, everything about your life, all about your motivations. God is acquainted, and that's a pretty weak word. This is poetry. It's much more profound than just, hey, yeah, he kind of happens to know. No, he knows. He knows everything about it. He is the creator of knowledge, the creator of you, the creator of time and space. He's acquainted with all your ways. How many ways? Every single way. Everything you cannot see within the inside of your body. The stuff that's going on right now, people have cancer in this room that you don't even know you have it. You've got tumors, you've got problems, you've got blood diseases, and, and you don't even know them yet. God knows all of that. He knows every cell, every atom of your body. He, he's fully acquainted with everything. Everything you've ever said, everything you say tonight, everything you will say, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it. You know it thoroughly, altogether, completely. I can't turn in any direction where you don't know. You know it all. You hem me in behind and before my past and my future, and you lay your hand upon me. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a close knowledge. It's an interactional, relational knowledge. It's a dynamic sense. It's not, it's not Aristotelian. It's not this philosophy of God kind of stepping away from the creation that he made or the deists of the founding of our country that God's a clockmaker and he kind of knows it. It's, he's not frozen. He, he in, interacts so much so that he injects his own son into space and time and and, and he knows it all. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is kind of a, a coming up for air in the middle of this psalm. Uh, it's high. I, I can't attain it. I, I can't even fathom it. To really think about the five verses I just read to you, if you really thought about it, you, you start to, to, to steam a little smoke out of your ears. That's a hard thing to comprehend. There's nothing you've ever... You can't remember how... I mean, I'm sitting there playing with my new grandson, thinking he won't remember a bit of what I'm doing right now, making a fool of myself in front of him. He won't, he, the first four years will be just erased from the memory banks. God knows everything, every giggle, every smile, everything a person ever does, all the things you've forgotten, all the stories you tell that aren't even accurate because you've rewritten the history of your life. He knows what really happened. It's really mind-boggling. If you want to talk about what your future looks like, you want to talk about your thoughts as it relates to a God who sees everything, who knows everything, where are you going to go from there? Where are you going to get? You can't get away. You're stuck. Where am I going to go from your spirit? Your spirit is this present person of the Godhead within the creation, interfacing with us. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, but the Spirit is everywhere in this world. He knows your thoughts. He knows every thought of every person in this room simultaneously right now. And you cannot hide from the knowledge of God. You can't flee from his his sentient presence, his knowledge of, of all that, that is happening. If you were to go up to heaven right now, yeah, well, of course he's there. You're going to make your bed in, in, in Sheol in the grave and find yourself you know, in, in a cave somewhere or deep sea scuba diving. You, you, God's going to be there. If I go all the way out to the east as far as I can possibly go and take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, it's not just that you know it or you see it on some remote screen some feed, some ring doorbell. No, 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 your hand leads me there. You're completely interactive with every cell of my body and my brain and the synapse of my, of my cranium. You know it all. You lead me there. Your right hand upholds me. None of it even works without God's intervention. 
If I say, and some of you do, and you kind of think God doesn't see parts of your life, if I say the darkness shall cover me and the light about me, it'll be night. Well, then even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. I know I said one through eight, but I'm going to keep reading. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my my mother's womb. I think it was supposed to be verse 18. That's why I'm still reading. I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Everything about your body, everything you don't understand about it, wonderful are your works. My, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, right? We're seeking hard to find, you know, it's these prenatal pictures that your wife's taking of your baby, and you're hanging up this, you know, this, this ghostly image on the refrigerator. All, it's just so distant even now with all of our technology, but God, God knows every bit of it. Every little tiny eyelash that's budding on a, on a pre-born child, God sees it all. My frame was not hidden. I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed systems. In your book, the knowledge, that's what, what books contain, knowledge, information, were written, every one of them, Obviously, poetic language about God's knowledge. The days that were formed for me, when yet there wasn't one of them. How precious to me are your thoughts. I mean, if I really think about that, there's something so valuable, something so unique. How vast is the sum of those? It's unthinkable how much information God knows about me. If I were to count them, they're more than the sand. I awake. I'm still with you. I can be unconscious. I cannot even know what I did, how loud I snored last night, how many times I rolled over, and, and you're there. You're there in my sleep. You're there in my waking life. Some of you come to church. You feel like there's where God kind of hangs out. You learn about him. Things you do in certain places when other people are looking, you think, well, those are the places where my life, you know, I'm, I'm kind of playing out on the stage of the world, and that's kind of where God is recording my deeds, and seeing my thoughts and my life, all of that is just, it, it's wrong, it's nonsense, it's tripe, it doesn't really work that way. And if I get up on a Sunday, or any pastor does on a platform in this campus and says, uh, hey, God um, loves you, God forgives you, your sins were appended to a cross 2,000 years ago, those statements become incredibly rich and dimensional when I start to think about God knows everything. Everything. If I say to you, God will never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing that can happen in your life if you are a Christian. There's no knowledge. There's no information. There's nothing that can happen in your life that he doesn't know ahead of time. Peter, doing this great preaching in the book of Acts, leading Cornelius to Christ. We're studying about, we're coming off that story tomorrow night in, in our weekend sermons. And you think about God knows that there would be a day when he would retreat when the circumcision party comes and he gets a little intimidated and he won't eat with the, with, with the, the Gentiles. God knew all of that. When he said, uh, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He sends him into ministry knowing full well exactly the failures that are going to take place in life. Not only do you know his past, and that's the part Peter can't get over, is his past. Well, I'd hate to show him his future. There's all kinds of failures in your future that are coming. And yet, Jesus, the God-man, knows all of these things in immaculate and great detail. 
God is a God that knows everything about you, and to think that through should change everything about your view of a God who you hear all the common truths and grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and path and will for your life. Think about the will for When you start to understand what Pastor Mark will preach on in terms of his mission and calling on your life, all of that is with, with complete, stark, complete, full knowledge of everything in your life. And all of it, of what he says, will be true. It becomes mind-boggling. If you think about a God that can't learn a single thing about you because he knows everything about you from beginning to end. He knows what you'll be doing 10 trillion years from now, the decisions you'll make, the words you'll say, the things that you'll interact with other people and, and, and discuss. He knows it all. He can't grow any smarter. He is an omniscient God. The omniscience of God is probably bigger and more vast than we think, and we ought to give it some thought. It changes everything about the truths of God. Secondly, we ought to get anchored to a God who not only cannot get smarter, he cannot get stronger, number two. We need to get anchored to a God who cannot get stronger. Turn back to Psalm 135 once you jot that down, because you need to think about what that means. There is a God overseeing everything in this world, who cannot in any way not have complete, sovereign, almighty, complete power over all things that happen. You picture Adam and Eve in a garden. You picture Eve reaching out her hand to take something that God says she can't take. And when she does, we think, man, look what happened, God. It looks so far out of his control because it is not in line with what he has revealed his will to be. You shall not eat from the tree that's in the garden. That was the plan. That was the thing that was said. And on a human dimension, that looks like, okay, that's what God wanted to happen, but he stands on the sidelines, and perhaps if I have a weak view of God, I picture him biting his nails, wondering if, in fact, she's going to take that. And like you and I sitting there watching something on television, and maybe you get sucked into a movie, and you think, wow, is she going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is that going to happen? And you in suspense. There's no suspense with God. Why? Because he's all-powerful. He cannot get stronger. Stronger, A potentate is one who has power. That's what the word means, potent. He's omnipotent. He has omnipotency. He has all power over all things. There's nothing in the purview of our lives that is not completely overseen by the sovereignty of God. Take a look at these verses, starting in verse number 5. I know that the Lord is great. When you say that about things, it is such a limited statement. When you say it about God, that is an absolute statement. There is greatness in the authority and power of God. He possesses all power. There's no power in the universe that is not derived from his power. All power is relegated to all the creatures that he makes. No creature has power or authority without him. I know that, our, I know that the Lord is great and our God is above all gods. Someone asked me about this recently. How does the Bible talk about gods? That there were no gods but God. Well, that's true. There's no God but God. If you're defining the word God as an absolute word of having all authority, you're right. There is no other being that has all authority. Lots of beings have authority. If you live in North Korea, you can look at the you know, propaganda and say, here's a guy who's got a lot of power. Got maybe some of you, you think about your boss could fire you and, and you lose your income. You think about 
you know, people uh, in certain parts of, of, thankfully, not every part of our county, but certain parts of our county, you fear someone's going to hop out from behind some corner of some building and can take your life because he's got a powerful weapon or he's a powerful person. All of that power, right, is derived. There are lots of people that have derived power, but they don't have ultimate power. So our God, though he gives and brokers power, it's all given to those powerful people from the one who has all power. Yeah, they're gods in the sense that they have authority. There's angelic beings, there's human beings, there's kings, there's princes, there's dictators, there's tyrants. But God is above all of that. As a matter of fact, if God wants to do something, there's no God, no person, no party, no president, no congressman. Nancy Pelosi cannot get in the way. There is no one who can get in God's way. Because God, verse 6, does whatever He pleases. And a lot of times, He pleases to allow the powers of this world to do what they do, even against the revealed will of God. The distinction between the decreed will of God and the revealed will of God, which is this is what He says you should do. You shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal. Then there's all these powerful people lying and cheating and stealing. And it gets worse. And he promised it would get worse. He's in charge of it getting worse. Don't both good and calamity come from the hand of the Lord? Can disaster come to a city unless the Lord ordains it? I can go on and on throughout the scripture to remind you, just as Job had to remind his wife, shall we accept good things from the hands of the Lord and not evil? God is a God who does whatever he pleases. If your view of God, and you grew up in some church that thinks that God is there in the corner, like the deists that often said, he winds up the clock and lets it do its thing, and you never know when you wind up a little toy what corner of the kitchen it might end up in. That's not the God that we serve. The God of the Bible is a God above all gods. He does whatever he pleases. Not only in heaven, you think, well, sure, in heaven, of course, he's going to be in charge of all the angels because he's got some high-ranking angels that are going to go take out the lower angels if they don't do what he says, but he does whatever he pleases on earth. And even in parts that you can't see, in the sea and in all the depths. He controls the weather. He controls the hurricanes. He controls the typhoons. You saw the footage of the volcano in Japan. He he does all of that. He's the one who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rains. He brings forth the winds from his storehouses. God is a absolutely omnipotent, completely expansively superlative, powerful God who has all authority over all things. If you get anchored to that kind of God, you don't start saying vanity, a vanity is all is vanity. Worthless, worthless, all is worthless. You don't say everything is striving after the wind. The book of Ecclesiastes is a great manly tragedy of a CEO that is not anchored in a relationship with God. Read the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes if you want to see how it ends. So when everything's done, you better get right with the God who is and relate to him and anchor your life in him. That's all that matters is the God who is, who is going to judge the world. He is a God who is in charge. He's omniscient and he's omnipotent. That's the whole point. And if you get unmoored from that, if you're not fixed to that, if you're not tied to that, then your life looks like the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you want to say it in a way that maybe seems a little softer than you would like to say it, it's true, your heart will be restless. It will be frustrated. There will be angst until you find rest in a God 
who you absolutely affirm in every way, no matter what problem it causes in your mind, whatever Charlie horse you get thinking about, can God really bring calamity to a city? You mean when the Twin Towers came down, God was in charge of all that? Until you get past all of your small views of God, you will never have a life that is anchored in an unchanging God because the unchanging nature of God is he cannot cease to be God, therefore he cannot learn and he cannot become more potent. He cannot get smarter, he cannot get stronger. God possesses all power and all authority. Go to Mark chapter 10 with me. Third thing God cannot do, it's important for us to catch. We're thinking about what we're doing here. We're talking about omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. Right, two attributes there in the first one. Let's look at this third one here to get a fourth attribute. Mark chapter 10 Verse 18, Mark chapter 10, verse 18, let's start there. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? We call me good. No one is good except God alone. If you're a regular here at, at, at Compass, we talked not too long ago in, in a weekend sermon, we kind of spent some time drilling down on that a little bit. Like, what, what is that all about? The absolute nature of the goodness of God. It's a God who is so good, perfectly good, that there's nothing about him that could be better than it is. Put it that way, number three, you need to anchor to a God who cannot get better. He cannot get smarter, he cannot get stronger, he cannot get better, and the attribute that usually we append to that, we make as the heading for that, is the fact that God is holy. Now clearly the word here, agathos, the word good, is the word that is is, de is, is depicting that kind of uniqueness. That's what holiness means, uniqueness. And the uniqueness of God, the holiness of God, is usually trying to point at and put a flashlight on his moral goodness. When we say holy, 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 we mean that God is pure. To put it in poetic terms, John does, he's light and in him is no darkness at all. There's nothing about God that is bad. You mean to tell me he is sovereign over the bad things, but he himself is not bad? It's exactly what I'm saying. And until you're anchored in that conundrum in your mind, until you get to the place where that antinomy in your mind is the fact that God is a God who is everywhere and he knows all things and he is all powerful and he's also all good, we're, we're not going anywhere in a relationship with God. That's why I went out to the University of Arizona, took my Philosophy 101 class. That's the thing they tried to dismantle in people's lives, right? And immediately, they said, okay, you Christians, you, you people that have come from your Christian homes, we're going to undo that. And if you don't think that doesn't happen, by the way, and I don't know why half of you send your kids to these universities, but if you have to, because they're going to be an ophthalmologist or a dentist or whatever, here's the thing. At least you need to prepare them. New book that just came out. I think it's a fresh out book. It's called Surviving Religion 101. I would recommend you get it. If your kid is getting ready to go off to college, you better read this book to them, just like they were a little five-year-old. Sit there and read a chapter to them every night and say, you're going to go off to college and you're going to learn what it is to be attacked in your Christianity every day and it's going to come down to so often what Pastor Mike just started this whole conference with, that God has all knowledge, he has all power, and he's also all good. And that's the whole point for freshmen is to dismantle their view of God based on that. Which again, think about this. We're sending kids to college. We're 98 0.5% of them are all liberal Democrats teaching your kids. Think this through now. We've weighted the entire educational system in that direction, and you're saying, okay, kids, 
you had a good time learning verses in Awana, you learned some good things and tried to stay off of drugs in, in the high school ministry, now go out there and try and survive in, in this context. I'm not saying it's wrong to send your kids to the university, but I am saying you better be ready. You better put a bulletproof vest on them. And if you're not teaching them apologetics from the time that they're 12 years old, so that they know what it is that our faith is rational and reasonable, and that someone can sit here even in a philosophy class like I sat in with 100 students at the University of Arizona and be able to say, I've got an answer to your question and your, your, your derision about a God who cannot be all-knowing and all-good and all-powerful. Not the goal of tonight to deal with the harmonization of that. We've got classes at CBI that focus largely on, on how we think these things through. But let's affirm the truth. My goal is to show you the unchanging character of God. And here's what God can't do. He can't get any better than he is. He's perfectly morally pure and right and just. He always does what is right. And again, all of this is not to be an abstract, nor is it to be apologetic. It's not to be abstract systematic theology. I'm trying to get this to make sense in your life. All the things that happen to you and the powers that be, all of that under God's control, all that authority is derived, everything that happens in your life, all that knowledge right, happens within the full view of God. All of that is known by God before it ever starts. And now I'm trying to say, in your life, you look at your life and you go, well, I don't quite measure up, but the Bible says God is good. There ought to be something that makes the grace of God, the riches of God's forgiveness, even having a relationship with God, mean something significant and powerful in your life because of this juxtaposition. Nobody's good but God alone, including you, the rich young ruler who thinks he's good. He says, don't you know the commandments? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. And if you're thinking of a courtroom, you think, check, check, check. Pretty good so far, I think I'm pretty good. Don't defraud. Well, okay, not on any big scale. Honor your father and mother. Uh, I was a pretty good kid. He says, teacher, I've done all these things from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to be superstar varsity Christians. No. How difficult it is in those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you read that too fast, you miss the whole point. All of these things in the commandments that reflect the good moral nature of God, like, I don't know, not killing people, not cheating on your wife, not taking stuff that's not yours, not lying, not defrauding, honoring your father and mother, those kinds of things, they reflect the character of God. Well, the beginning of the tablets of the Ten Commandments start with your relationship with this God, and if he's God and you're not, he should be the center of everything in your life, and nothing should supplant his supremacy. The problem with this guy is he had a lot of wealth, and God said, I just show you right now, you think you've kept all the commandments? Let's start with the first one. You have no other God before me. Let's talk about all your money. Just leave your money here and show that God is number one in your life and that nothing rivals his supremacy in your life. I mean, he went right for it. He set him up and took him out. You think you're good because you're better than other people. You think you're good because you haven't broken the big rules, at least not in the way you think qualifies as breaking them, even though if Jesus went back to the Sermon on the Mount, he could prove to this rich young ruler that he'd broken all of those laws, including hate and lust, all of those on the spectrum of those sinful things. You are not good. Only good person is the triune God. 
That's it. The God who, who, who dwells in, in, in eternity past, holy, perfect, without any defect. The three persons of the Godhead, the three-in-one God, that's all that's good, and you think you're good, well, let's just get to the first law. You can't even give up your wealth when the God of the universe tells you to do it. And he says, yeah, if you're trying to measure up, as most people are, to say, I'll be good with God when I die because I'm a good person, he's trying to make that very clear. You can't even get in based on your goodness. When the Pharisees look at the tax collectors and said, I'm glad I'm not like them, they're going to hell for sure. Jesus is the only one that goes home justified is the one who realizes that they're not good. And this is the whole point of Jesus saying, give your possessions away and follow me. He couldn't do it because he was a sinner. And he wasn't willing to admit he was a sinner. The disciples were amazed at his words. Man, this guy's better than us. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The more you got, the harder it is to supplant the supremacy of God the God of money with God. They were exceedingly astonished. And they said to them, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. How good are you? And I often talk about your neighbor, but let me think about you. Do you think you're going to be right with a perfectly morally good God because you're better than the next guy? The answer is no. You will not get any pass because you're better than the next guy. Any more than you being a windshield manufacturer shipping your windshields to the windshield repair companies and saying, well, my windshields have smaller cracks in them than the other windshield manufacturers. Jesus says you can't have a defect and pass inspection with the person that is there holding up humanity and saying, I have created you to do right, and you can't even put me at the front of, of your priority list. Who can be saved? No one can be saved. Why? Because no one is good. Well, I'm glad there's a comma there and not a period. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, comma, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. God says you should not exonerate the guilty and you should not condemn the innocent in the courts. And yet in the courtroom of eternity, he's going to exonerate you. He's going to break the rules by keeping a rule that no one knew was possible. And that is, at least no one outside the revelation of God's word, ask a Muslim, ask a Hindu, ask a Buddhist, they all think there's no way for this to happen. The imputation of God's perfect holiness given to you through a transaction of Christ incarnate and a death of Christ on the cross. That's a transaction no other religion believes in. And we're saying that's what makes exoneration of the guilty possible. If you don't see a God who cannot accept you based on your morality, then you don't have your life anchored on the real God. You really can't sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You can say that in a song as long as you're singing at a funeral or a church service, but you can't have anyone else call you a wretch because you really don't believe it. Until you actually anchor your life to a perfect God that you know can't, cannot get any better. He's not going to hang out with you, the holy God. He's not going to hang out with a sinner. Unless, of course, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
this legal fiction that Martin Luther talked about that turned the world upside down at the Reformation 500 years ago? Do you understand that you are a sinner that is declared righteous? Even though you are still a sinner, you are now made righteous, and it is as though you're not a sinner unless you're anchored in that truth. You will constantly be, talk about vanity and grasping the wind, trying to have a relationship with God based on the fact that you think you're good enough. You have to get anchored to a God who cannot get better. If he's morally perfect in every way, we call that attribute God's holiness, then you're going to struggle until you surrender like the man who could not look up to heaven and beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Isaiah chapter 44. All of these things ultimately come down to a God who cannot end. Once you find that passage, jot this down, get anchored to a God who cannot end. He cannot cease to exist. He cannot stop being all that he is, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. Once he created the fabric of space and time, everywhere active in all of that, he's transcendent and yet active within his creation. And that God cannot in any way cease to be. God is God as God always and ever will be. He liked to say about himself, I was and I am and I will be. The God who was, who is, and is to come. That's the God that is. That's the only God that there is. The attribute we usually associate with that is the word eternal. God is an eternal God. And again, this is not systematic theology, though these are theological terms. I want to look at how this relates to us. How does this work? Well, Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. Okay, so I'm in charge, have all power, and I'm gracious and imputing my righteousness to you, which happened even in the Old Testament, even though Christ had not died in space and time yet. It was as though he died from the creation of the world. And even Abraham believing, read Romans chapter 4, God imputed that faith, that trust in a God, as righteousness, he gets redeemed the same way we do. The Lord of hosts. He's all-powerful. Now, a little bit about the eternality. I am the first and I am the last. It's a poetic way of saying all the bookends of all the things that you can think about, the beginning of creation, the end of this world, and the recreation of the eternal state, I, I'm there. Besides me, there is no God. Now we're not talking just about his authority. We're talking about his eternality. Every other being in the universe had a beginning, including the archangels, even Satan. They all had a start. Clearly, humanity has a start, and we're reminded of it in every generation because unlike the angels, he didn't create us all at one time. He had us through their generation successfully coming into existence in time, which is a weird way to populate the world, but that's what he did, unlike the angelic class. And so we cannot stop but remember how temporal and transient we are, but God is eternal. He cannot stop being all that he is. He was before, he will be. And because of that, he's by definition exclusively God. There's no other eternal creature in the universe but God. Who is like me? Verse 7, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed this ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And you can say, well, that certainly is his omniscience. I get that. 
And his omnipresence, he's as present in the future as he is in the past. But the idea of this, in my mind, as we think about it, and I can't help but overlap a little bit on what you're going to hear in the rest of the weekend, and that is that God has revealed that in the book. So when I pick up the book and I say, what does the Bible say about the end of the world? Let's just talk about the forecast now. Things will proceed from bad to worse. Imposters and evil men will continue. This is what's going to happen. In the latter days, difficult times will come. All of those things in the forecast and all how it's going to end, 2 Peter chapter 3, when he's going to destroy the world and recreate a new one in which righteousness dwells, all of those things we can be certain of, not only because his word is sure, and PJ will talk about that, but because he himself is the eternal God. He's in charge of all that. He will never end. He has always been. He's declared it. And my point this weekend to start this conference is that should affect us. I'm not going to be Solomon groping around for meaning, trying to shove things into my life to help me feel better. No, fear not. Be not afraid. I've, have I not told you from old and declared it? You're my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? No, there is no rock. I know not any. You want a good study? It won't be as easy as just using a concordance on your Bible software to find the word rock. Do that first. You'll find hundreds of, of uses of the word rock or stone. But then go through those and look at the titles of God that are tied to that. Sometimes it's just he is our rock and our fortress. But so many other times it's connected to other words. That's a rich metaphor in Scripture. God is the immovable rock. His words, of course, are like a rock. You build your house on the rock. We have so many metaphors in Scripture about this, but the fact is that God is a God who has always been and always will be. We're coming along in the temporal reality of life, and we're affixing ourselves to the eternal one. He never changes and cannot change because he is eternal. And in his perfection, he's always been. And in his knowledge, he's always been. And in his power, he's always been. He can't get better. He can't get stronger. He can't get smarter. And he never ceased to be who he is. That ought to be for us a comfort. We ought to be able to say everything might be like wind and grasping at the wind, but grasping at God is completely and entirely different. That's a great passage. If I had time, I'd go on to talk about how he rails on the folly of idolatry. We read it in our DBR not long ago. One more text, Hebrews chapter 6. Many passages in Scripture talk about the immutability of God in various ways, but one thing, and we'll unpack this tomorrow morning, the idea of a God who cannot lie. Of course, that's all inscribed in the promises of his word, but I want us to, number five, get anchored to a God who cannot lie. Put it in terms of Titus chapter one, verse two, right? God is a God, right? Who has never lied. He won't lie. He cannot lie because his nature is never to lie. If he makes a promise, he will keep it. What about those passages that talk like in Jonah chapter three that he, he was gonna judge the people, but then he, he relented, right? The ESV says. Okay. The humility immutability of God. All I got to do is put together where we've been. He, he can't get any smarter. He can't get any stronger. He can't get any better. He cannot end. He has all power. He knows all things. Of course, when the Ninevites repented, did he know that? Of course he did. Of course he knew that. Of course, this was the plan. He empowered them to repent. I even use the words in the discussion questions that I wrote today that'll be published tomorrow. The idea of an anthropomorphism, an anthropomorphism a statement in Scripture that states, anthropos, man, states in a manly way, a human way, a temporal way, morphism, morphe, in a form of man, the nature of God. 
It is what John Calvin talked about as baby talk, right? God is trying to give us, like we would as, as a parent, talk to our, our little babies in ways they can understand in simple terms. That's really hard when they're little babies. It's like God giving us something to give us a sense of assurance through his baby talk. Those anthropomorphisms. God is a God. It says in Genesis 6, he regretted that he made man, right? Well, if I know that he knows all things, he has all power, he is eternal, right? And he's holy. I just, I know that that cannot mean, this has to be some kind of literary way for God to express to us the grief and pain over the fact. Matter of fact, those are the words that Leb in Hebrew, the heart. He, he, he was grieved to his heart because of the sin of mankind, because his thoughts were always continually evil. That expresses in God's baby talk to us the idea of God being a God who in the timeline and being dynamically engaged in his creation, oh, he doesn't change, he's immutable. And when he said, hey, you'd better repent, right? The idea of repentance in scripture and then people repenting or even in the book of Jonah where he says, hey, it's just gonna be a matter of days until you're gonna be destroyed. Those are statements that are made not as though God's gonna watch and see what happens. God is not an open theist then you shouldn't be either. The idea is that God is a God who states these things much like you would say, hey, if you don't put on a jacket, you're going to catch a cold or something like that, which I don't even know if there's any correlation to that. But the idea of saying, you better do this or else, of course, the statements are made as a rhetorical use of God's expression and communication to human beings. But God is a God who's consistent and reliable. And again, this is not an abstract discussion of theology, although I've said that many times and it seems like it is. All of it is really to get to the place where this passage takes us, to the whole theme of the weekend, and that is an anchor for our soul. That's the point, verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, had no children, wanted children, his name meant great father, and he wasn't, couldn't even have babies. Sarah was, was infertile. But he wouldn't make him wait for a number of years, but he wanted to make a promise to him and he wanted to show something about the need for him to trust. And the point is, quote unquote, the father of our faith, Abraham, was going to express that trust and God was going to make him a, a, a pedagogical example, a, a teaching illustration for all, all the rest of humanity. So he makes him wait, but he makes him wait and trust in a promise. And since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he can't say, I swear to God, God strike me dead if I don't do this. He can't swear to God because he is God. Well, he swore by himself, saying, well, I'm just going to say, surely I, based on my authority, me, the eternal one, the all-powerful one, the one that knows all things and is, is always exercising my authority, I, I will bless you and I will multiply you. Verse 15, thus Abraham, having waited patiently, guess what? God gave him a child. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes and an oath is a final confirmation, or at least it used to be, I swear to God, Right, you would say in a courtroom, right? So help me God. God basically an oath us, God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth. But when God, so when God, verse 17, desired to show, now here's the pastoral part. Here's some good counsel right here. When God wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, which reminds us this is not just the history lesson about Abraham, this is about us. In the midst of a persecuted church in the first century where people are being hauled off to jail that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. Right? He says, just no. God's going to keep his promise. This is all worth it for you to take the scorn of the world by saying, for instance, there are two genders and God has sexual ethics that you're supposed to keep and God's eternal word is true and you ought to keep 
his word and you got to do what he tells you to do, all that, you're going to get mocked for that. But all of it is worth it. Even to get hauled off to jail or get your head cut off or your kids get kidnapped by the government because of it, let's just say. All of it, you should be convinced that God's going to keep his promises. Why? To show you that more convincingly, the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, right? In other words, I'm going to make a promise and then I'm going to swear an oath. Those are two things that people are supposed to, if they're good and moral, they should never break those. I promise and I swear an oath. So by two unchangeable things, and then let's add a third, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Then we who have fled for refuge, number one, from the penalty of our sin, number two, from the disaster of this world that is just waiting for judgment, storing up for itself wrath on the day of God's wrath, we're going to flee from all that. We're going to take refuge. We're going to flee for refuge. We're going to have strong encouragement. And that's the point. You're not going to live the Ecclesiastes life. And we're going to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. If God promised for you to say no to the world and yes to God and to trust him, then you're going to live in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes and not in the first 11 chapters. And you're going to say, it is worth it. It is right. When all is said and done, fear God and keep his commandments. Because God's going to judge. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, or uh, Ecclesiastes, to get past the vanity part. Then we have this. If God made a promise, swore an oath, made a promise to us about our lives today in the 21st century, well then, we have a steadfast, here it is, anchor of the soul, a weight to tie us, to moor us, to anchor us. A hope that isn't just put in a book or some theory or philosophy. You know, it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's the picture of God. It's a relationship with God. My job is to get you to think about a being tied to the character of God. That's the anchor for us. A hope that goes all the way into there where most of us can't go Right? Only the high priest could go into that symbolic chamber where God was supposed to be visibly manifesting his glory. But all of that was a picture of having a relationship with this God. And guess what? He's got a promise that takes me right there. That's an anchor for my heart. Where Jesus, by the way, our great high priest, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest, he's going to represent sinful people like you and me who admit our sinfulness, and he's going to be that high priest forever didn't need to make an atonement for his own sin because he was sinless. His righteousness imputed to me, my sin imputed to his cross, and he is a priest. Even though he's not of the tribe of Levi, he's the tribe of Judah because he's going to be the king. He's of the order of Melchizedek, that interesting priest king that showed up in the Old Testament with Abraham to tie this as a nice inclusio between verse 13 and verse 20. 2,000 years before Christ. My hope is for you not to live the tragic, manly, ridiculous, futile life of Solomon when he was chasing women and alcohol, power, materialism, and all of it he ends up saying is striving after women because he was not anchored to the truth of who God was. Some have rightly said that the changing nature of God from your perspective is much like the planets that rotate the fusion ball called the sun. It does not change. But your perspective on God may change. Conversion is like that. Matter of fact, jot this down if you're still taking notes, you haven't given up on me yet. 2 Samuel, just in conclusion, verses, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 26 through 31. This passage that reminds us of God's nature 
It says, with the merciful, God, you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless man, right, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself as one who deals purely. With the crooked man, you make yourself seem torturous. You save the humble man. Your eye is, though, uh, on the haughty to bring them down. You're going to look at them, all right, but you've got, a, you've got judgment on them. For you are my lamp, O Lord. You're a lamp. You're a light. My God, it lightens my darkness. And when I try to hide in the darkness, well, then all of a sudden, God becomes torturous to me. God is now going to, going to seem like God is changing. God is not changing. You are choosing to sin. For you are a lamp, O Lord, my God who lightens my path. And if that doesn't, it should eventually, if you had some time to contemplate it, take your mind to James chapter 1 that says, listen, any good comes when you orient yourself to anchor yourself, focus yourself on that God Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Do you remember that passage in James chapter 1, verse 16? It comes down from the Father of lights. He's unchanging, right? With whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. There's no shadow on the surface of the sun, right? None. And that's God. Now, there may be a shadow on the backside of the moon. There may be a shadow right now on our city because we're on the other side of that ball of fusion, but there's no shadow there. God is the unchanging, immutable God. He cannot in any way grow in his knowledge. He can't grow in his goodness. He can't grow in his strength. He cannot cease to be. And he cannot lie if he says to you, turn to me, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Pull close to me. I'll pull close to you. Wash yourself, Isaiah 1 says. And God will take you then as you wash yourself, as you reason with God, as you let your sins be laid before God, and God will make you white as snow. God, the God you're running from, maybe even as a Christian in some pocket of your life, if you turn to him, this unchanging, immutable God will be the source of a whole different relationship. It's not as though God has changed. But tonight, your heart can change. And even if you're saved here tonight, you know you're a Christian. It's time for you to align your focus, fix your eyes straight ahead, neither to the right or the left. That picture of just staying right on focus, that's an anchoring of your heart in the character of the immutable, unchanging God. And I trust that you will do that. Let's pray about it. God, let us learn more about your unchanging nature and the power of having our lives oriented to you. That the fishermen from Galilee can say, yeah, we've left everything to follow you. We have no problem right here. They didn't realize how much grace was involved in that. But they could say, we follow you. You are our God. We are your servants. We do your will. And here those fishermen could align themselves with the unshifting, unchanging, invariable source of good and receive blessing and forgiveness and grace and purpose and meaning and security. Well, the rich young ruler who had all this stuff walked away and continued to live in the pathway of Solomon. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's chasing or striving after the wind. God, for men here in this room that are striving after the wind, I pray that you'd change their orientation tonight. Let us be fixed in our focus, our attention, like a bird that needs to be fed to, to cry out for you to fill us. Your condemnation on a nation in the Old Testament was it had dug a lot of holes trying to look for water cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water, and they had done an appalling thing, and heaven could see it clearly, and they couldn't. 
They'd taken the glory that they had available to them, the God, the unshifting, eternal, immutable giver of all good things, and they gave up that glory so that they could go and chase something that wasn't worth chasing. God, there are men in this room that are chasing things that aren't worth chasing. I pray that even tonight they would lay down their sin at your feet. They'd say, it's time for me to be anchored in a new and a fresh way, in a focused way, in the greatness of the eternal, holy, omniscient, omnipotent, truthful, faithful God. God, do that for us tonight, I pray, even as we discuss these truths together now. In Jesus' name, amen.